Well, Laura got away with a very short reading this morning. Um, it wasn't by design, it's just that I forgot to tell anybody what the reading was meant to be. <laughs> so she just read the thing that we're actually going to be looking at this morning. But no matter, you can uh, read around it for yourself to get the, the context. Now we are going to resume our intermittent series uh, on Zechariah this morning and then continuing uh, throughout next month uh, on each Sunday evening. So we've got another chunk of Zechariah uh, coming up. Uh, you probably remember that Zechariah falls into two parts, and the second part consists of two oracles. So uh, back in August, when we were last in, in Zechariah, we actually finished the first section... And we just dipped our toes into the first of the oracles uh, in the second section. Uh, and we looked at uh, Zechariah 9, verses 1 to 9. And in verses 1 to 7, we saw that there was a foretelling of the destruction of the nations surrounding Judah. That's Syria, Phoenicia, and Philistia. And that destruction included the overthrow of Tyre, which was a, a proven, impregnable fortress. And unlikely as it seemed, that is exactly what came to pass. About 200 years later, when Alexander the Great swept through the region, Syria was beaten, Tyre was destroyed, and the Philistine cities were so decimated that the Philistines were never heard of again. Then in verse 8, um, we saw that it was foretold that in the midst of all that destruction and all of that upheaval, the Lord would defend Judah as the surrounding nations were being swept away. Puny, insignificant little Judah would be protected. And unlikely as it might seem, <coughs> history tells us that that is also exactly what happened. Alexander was actually bearing down upon Jerusalem when for no obvious reason he had a, a, had a change of mind. Um, he was actually going in for the kill and he had a change of heart and he spared the city. And then we saw that verse 9 goes on to say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And you might think, well, no wonder they were to rejoice after being so wonderfully protected. But they weren't being told to rejoice merely because they were going to be spared destruction. They weren't to rejoice uh, because their enemies would be wiped out. Verse 9 goes on to tell us why they were to rejoice by saying, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So they were to rejoice greatly because a king was going to come. Indeed, they were to be spared so that this king could come. And it wasn't any old king that was coming. Um, no, this was their king. The text says, behold, your king is coming to you. Uh, the things that were foretold that Alexander would do were all part of the preparation for the coming of their king. 
and he wouldn't be another Alexander. He'd not be an earthly king. He'd be the king of the people of God. And what we've been seeing uh, is the remarkable way in which God uh, worked throughout history to bring his coming about. So today, I want to look more closely at verses 9 and 10 and see the reason for the exhortation to rejoice at the coming of this king. What was so special about him? Well, we'll see that he'd be totally different from Alexander or any other king. And there are really two aspects to this rejoicing at the coming of this king. Firstly, there's the sense of, behold your king and rejoice. The idea is, look at him and rejoice because of what you see. Rejoice because of what your coming king is like. And verse 9 then goes on to tell us about what this king is like. We're told something of the character of that king. But secondly, there's the sense of your king is coming to you. This king is coming to you, so rejoice, rejoice because your king is coming. And in verse 10, we're told uh, what that would mean. We're told what he would do when he came. So they were to rejoice, not simply because a king was going to come, but because of what their coming king would be like, and because of what their coming king would do. Last time we were in Zechariah, we saw that uh, Matthew 21 verse 4 makes it very clear that Jesus riding on a donkey and entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was the direct fulfilment of this promise. So the man Jesus was the king whose coming was foretold in Zechariah 9.9. Throughout Zechariah he's been referred to as the branch and he's been referred to as the man who is God who was sent by God. Uh, this coming king whose coming was being foretold through Zechariah was none other than King Jesus. In verse 9 we'll see what was foretold about the character of King Jesus and in verse 10 we'll see what was foretold about the actions of King Jesus. So firstly then, let's look at the character of King Jesus. In verse 9, we're told four characteristics of the King who was to come. He is righteous. He is the Saviour. He is humble. And he is peaceful. So, so firstly, he is the righteous King. That is, he is just in all that he does. He's characterised by justice. And that's a, an excellent characteristic for, for any king, isn't it? Although, sadly, it's one that tends not to be seen in, in earthly kings. How often have earthly kings exercised tyranny rather than justice? How often do earthly kings do what will further their own ends, rather than what's right, rather than what's for the good of their people. Remember back in uh, 7 verse 9, we saw how God wants his people to be. Uh, there he said, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Well, this king would exemplify that. He would be what we should be. 
He's righteous and administers true justice. But it's being a king who's righteous and just is a two-edged sword, isn't it? The good news is that he won't be a tyrant. He won't take advantage. He won't be unfair. That's the good news. But the bad news is that his righteousness won't condone unrighteousness in others. His righteousness demands that he condemns sin wherever he finds it. Men were created to be just and merciful and compassionate, but we're not like that. We are sinners. Back in chapter 7, after reading uh, that the Lord had told them how they should be, uh, we went on to read in verses 11 and 12 how they responded, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the prophets that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Now, of course, it's very tempting to tell ourselves that, well, that was then. That was those people. But we're not like them. We tell ourselves that, well, they, they were quite primitive, but we've come a long way since then. Many centuries of uh, progress have, have taken place. But you see, the fact is that modern men are every bit as prone uh, to refuse to pay attention to God as they were, and to turn away from him as they were, and to stop their ears and make their hearts hard. That's what we're naturally like. The Bible is very clear that none of us is righteous. Uh, Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, we read, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are uncomfortable and damning words, aren't they? But they actually describe us. That being the case... This king being righteous would not be good news were it not for the second thing that's said about him. And that is that he is the saviour king. We're told that he'll come having salvation. The idea is that he'll come to bring salvation, he will have salvation to give. Uh, and of course the word salvation must speak of being saved from something. Now, tragically, when Jesus did come as promised, the only salvation that the Jews were interested in was being saved from the Romans. That they wanted a mighty warrior king who would defeat the Romans and boot them out of the land. Now, with that expectation, Jesus must have come as a, a terrible disappointment to them. He didn't come as an all-conquering warrior king, an white charger, like, like Alexander the Great, no, we're told he came humble and mounted on a donkey. He didn't come equipped for sending the Roman legions packing. 
but he came perfectly equipped to bring the salvation that was really needed. What was that? What do men need saving from? Well, the answer is they need saving from the, the consequences of their sin. We need saving from the righteous judgments of God on our unrighteousness. So Romans 6.23 describes the consequences of our unrighteousness as being for the wages of sin is death. But then it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That gift of God, gift of eternal life, that salvation, being spared eternal spiritual death that we deserve and being given eternal life. How can that be? How can a, a holy and a righteous God give sinners eternal life? Well, Romans 6.23 goes on to say, in Christ Jesus our Lord, it's through the King who was to come who would be righteous and having salvation. Now, Zechariah wasn't told exactly how the coming King would be able to bring that salvation. But it was revealed uh, to Isaiah. Uh, the whole of Isaiah 53 is a wonderful foretelling of how Jesus would bear the sins of his people and die in their place to save them and then be raised from the dead. Uh, that chapter culminates in verses 11 and 12 by saying, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now that could only work if he was both righteous and willing to be numbered with the transgressors. He had to be sinless and he had to be willing to submit himself to such indignity and such agony. Well, we've already seen that he's righteous, so he was sinless. Um, no other king is righteous, but he is. But he was also willing to submit himself to that awful death in our place. So in John 10, 17 to 18, we see that Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I can't imagine Alexander the Great laying down his life. You can't imagine any other earthly king willingly laying down their lives for others, can you? They expect others to be prepared to lay down their lives for them. That's the way it works. But not with King Jesus. He laid down his life freely. So moving on to the third characteristic of King Jesus... Uh, it was foretold that he is the humble king. That's clear because he'd be humble and mounted on a donkey. Lowly is probably a, a better translation than humble here. Um, certainly gentleness, meekness, humility are, are all characters, characteristics of Jesus. 
But the primary thought behind the word used here is that of being poor in, in outward circumstances. It speaks of being ordinary. It speaks of being in poverty. And what, what sort of kid is this? He has no opulence, no worldly riches, no trappings of, of regal <coughs> splendour. Why should they rejoice in such a king? You remember they did once uh, wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. Uh, um, what good had having such kings ever done them? Their coming king would be totally unlike the kings of the other nations. He'd be lowly. He'd be a suffering king. First and foremost, because he had to be willing to die in the place of sinners if he was to bring salvation. But there's also another important consequence here. He, he wouldn't live a life of luxury, insulated from everyday life, uh, and ordinary people, as earthly kings and queens do. Don't, have you ever read the book The Queen and I by <laughs> Sue Townsend? Uh, it, it's set in Britain following the fictional election of a Republican government. And the Queen has been rehoused on a council estate in the Midlands. <clears throat> what a massive culture shock. You're from Buckingham Palace and a wide choice of other royal residences in all sorts of desirable locations of, around the realm to a council estate. And in the Midlands at that. <laughs> no offence to any Midlanders. What a come down. But you see, Jesus, the lowly king, was born in obscurity. And he lived in poverty. He was born in a stable. Grew up in a carpenter's home. In his later life, we're told he had nowhere to lay his head. In death, he even had to be buried in a borrowed grave. He was a man of the people. A man in touch with ordinary people. A far cry from uh, what's, what's normally expected of kings and queens. Royal etiquette decrees that there must be no physical contact with the monarch. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but many years ago now, during a royal visit to Australia, the Australian Prime Minister caused uproar because he did actually touch the Queen. And it was a great scandal, and the press promptly labelled him as the Lizard of Oz. <laughs> the monarch must not be touched. Now, in one sense, that's just a quaint piece of antiquated etiquette. But it's also symbolic, isn't it, of the monarch being separate from the people and above them. Being untouchable speaks of being in a different sphere, being aloof. Well, Zechariah was told that wouldn't be the case with the coming king. He wouldn't be aloof, he wouldn't be untouchable. He'd be lowly, he'd share with ordinary people in their poverty and everyday hardships. And that was exactly the case with Jesus, wasn't it? He shared with people. People touched him. He let children sit on his lap. He held babies. He even touched lepers. He was approachable. He understood where people were, were coming from. They could come to him for help and for salvation. And it's not just that that's what he was like during his earthly life. 
But even now, as he, as he reigns in glory, he still understands yeah. and is still approachable. So we're told in Hebrews 4, 14 to 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Even as he now reigns in heaven, he's able to sympathise with us as his people. Uh, he understands our needs and our weakness. Even in glory, he's humble enough to care about the likes of us. The fourth, fourth thing to see about him is that he is the peaceful king. Now that he's the peaceful king might not seem obvious from the text, but it's indicated by the fact that we're told he'd be mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. First sight, that might simply be taken as further confirmation of his loneliness. It could suggest loneliness or poverty. But the fact is that, that kings did sometimes ride on donkeys. The point behind his riding on a donkey seems to be that he wouldn't be a mighty warrior king on a powerful war horse. Riding on a donkey showed that he'd come in peace. That not only did he come in peace, but he came, we're told, to bring peace. So, so in Isaiah 53 again, we read verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed by our, for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It was foretold that he would bring peace. Romans 5 verse 1 confirms that's exactly what he did. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace he brought. It was first and foremost peace with God. And we can know that peace with God if we're made right with God through trusting in Jesus as our Saviour. So that's four aspects of the character of King Jesus. But now let's turn our attention to the actions of King Jesus. Verse, beginning of verse 10, it's God who's speaking. And he tells us something that he would do. He said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. That's speaking of a time to come when war and weapons of war will be no more. That would be God's doing, but how would he do it? Well, he'd do it through the king who was to come because he goes on to speak of what the coming king would say and do. Two things are mentioned. He'd speak peace and he would rule. So King Jesus would come to speak peace. We see that as we continue in verse 10, where we read, and he shall speak peace to the nations. You notice that the peace he would proclaim would not only be to, to the Jews, but to people of all nations. And the peace in question here it is shalom, and that's the Hebrew word for peace, that doesn't merely refer to the absence of conflict, it speaks of wholeness and well-being, it's an inner, personal, contented peace. 
And the point is that there will be no end to warfare and out of conflict until men have this inner peace that King Jesus proclaims. Only he can offer that peace because it depends on being at peace with God. And we can only be at peace with God through Jesus Christ. So look at what we're told in uh, Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. This is speaking of Jesus. that said, For he himself is our peace, who has made, it, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. How does Jesus bring about peace between enemies? Well, he does it by reconciling each of those enemies to God through his death on the cross. Well, men try to be peaceful. Everybody likes the idea of peace, don't they? Um, But how to achieve it? Men men like the idea, uh, they want to resolve conflict, but they're doomed to failure because they can't make others right with God any more than they can make themselves right with God. They can't change the hearts of others any more than they can change their own hearts. The only hope of peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read in John 14, 27 that Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives isn't the world's idea of peace. It's his peace. Or John 16:33, where Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The peace we have through him isn't peace in the world. It isn't peace with the world. It's the peace that comes from knowing that he has overcome the world. Um, Peter's words in in Acts 10.36 As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ (coughs) and then in brackets he is Lord of all he said that peace is through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all King Jesus is the source of true peace and with that thought that he is Lord of all It brings us to the next thing that we see. King Jesus would come to rule. We see that because, uh, continuing verse 10, we read, His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Because he would be a king, but it follows that he'd rule, doesn't it? That's what kings do. They, They rule. But you see, unlike any earthly king, his rule would be worldwide. No end of kings have desired to have a worldwide rule, but none have ever accomplished it. But King Jesus will rule worldwide. 
in Zechariah's day, this king was yet to come and yet to rule. In our day, this king has come and his kingdom permeates the, the whole world because his people are to be found throughout the whole world. But the promise is that his rule will extend throughout the whole world. That isn't yet the case. Uh, the Jews rejected his kingship when he came and still continue to do so. Gentiles all around the world reject his kingship whenever they hear the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ and don't put their trust in him. But we look forward to the time when uh, King Jesus will rule over the whole earth. The time will come, we're told, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Revelation 11.15 we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The whole world will become his kingdom, and his rule over it will be forever and ever. And when he reigns over the world, he'll rule with perfect righteousness. Hebrews 1 8 tells us, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Well, who will be in that kingdom? Colossians 1 12 to 14 tells us, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those who will be in that kingdom will be those that he's delivered. It will be those that he's redeemed, those he's forgiven. In short, it's those he's saved. Well, thanks be to God for sending righteous, saving, lowly, peaceful King Jesus to speak peace to the nations and to rule from sea to sea. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Steve, shall we pray just briefly as we reflect on what Steve has brought to us? Dear Lord, thank you for those uh, wonderful words uh, from the prophet Zechariah that look forward uh, to the coming of King Jesus. Um, we pray that as we um, think back on the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus and what we can uh, learn from that and the power in that that we would be encouraged. And as we look forward uh, to the coming again of the King Jesus, um, we would be encouraged too. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, that you are our Lord and King. Amen. Amen.